So Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would open our hearts and minds again to the wonder and the significance of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would uh, see him uh, risen and raised afresh and worship him as Lord and Savior in his name. It was uh, Bertrand Russell who said that there is darkness without and when I die, there will be darkness within. In the mind of the great uh, atheist philosopher, uh, the darkness of doubt and death was the ultimate reality. And it's no coincidence, it seems to me, that John's Easter account opens in darkness. Did you notice as Mary arrives, it is still dark. Darkness is rich in John's gospel. It is symbolic so often in John's gospel of uh, ignorance and doubt of sin and death. John's account opens in darkness because before the resurrection of Jesus, it is a world still dominated and defeated by darkness and death. But with the resurrection of Christ, a, a new day dawns. Did you notice the repeated refrain? It happens in verse 1. It'll come again. Actually, you don't see it because it comes again in verse 19, which we're looking at this evening. Uh, it's the first day of a new week. Again, it is symbolic. A new day is dawning. The sun has risen, and he is driving the cold chill of doubt and death and darkness away. And I have two points I hope will help us navigate through what John wants us to see, really, from this passage. They flow from his great account of why it is that he wrote his gospel in verses uh, 31 of chapter 20. He writes uh, the things of his gospel, and particularly the resurrection account, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So two things John wants us to have. The first is this. He wants us to have a faith beyond reasonable doubt. He wants us to have a faith beyond reasonable doubt. At the heart of the first Christian sermons was this foundational truth on which the faith of the first followers of Jesus was built and for which many of them lost their lives. And the truth was this, that the crucified man, Jesus Christ, had been raised from the dead three days later. Why was it so significant? Why was that the cornerstone of the earliest Christian creeds? Well, because the resurrection of Christ was the great vindication and validation of the person and work of Jesus. The resurrection proclaimed that Jesus is who he said he is, the divine Son of God, and that he had done what he said he would do suffer for the sins of his people as their saviour to win them new and eternal life. Thus his followers could be assured of forgiveness and the hope of personal resurrection and the renewal of the universe. And so John lays before us some of the evidence for this unique event that we might have confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the King the Son of God. 
and he gives us the evidence of the empty tomb and the first eyewitnesses. Three things to note. We could note many more, but the time that we have, three things I want to draw your attention to this morning. The first is this, Mary and her gender. It is striking, it is not insignificant that the first eyewitness of the empty tomb and the first eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus himself is Mary. And it is, of course, easy to miss in our culture the significance of this fact for the historical veracity of the resurrection. For women had such a low social status in Jesus' day that their testimony was not valid. It was not admissible in a court of law. So if you were inventing, fabricating the events of the resurrection, you simply would not have women as your first eyewitnesses. N.T. Wright, the, uh, uh, formerly the Bishop of Durham, New Testament scholar, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our age, says this. Uh, he points out that the pressure on the first proclaimers of the Christian message to remove the women from the scene must have been enormous. But they did not. And they did not because the gospel writers and the early evangelists simply would not airbrush history that way. This is what happened, so this is what they record. Mary and her gender. Secondly, notice the disciples in the grave clothes. John and Peter uh, enter the tomb. They find Jesus' grave clothes as they were when Jesus was in them with the, uh, the head cloth uh, sort of neatly folded. And it's this observation that convinces John, even though actually at this stage he, he can't understand how and he can't understand why, but he is convinced that Jesus has risen bodily from the dead. So the empty tomb proves to John that this is no spiritual resurrection as it is sometimes claimed. You know how people talk about Elvis living on in, the followers of it, you know, in his followers in their hearts. Elvis still lives in that sort of spiritual sense. Well, the empty tomb says no. That cannot be the case for Christ. He was bodily raised. The tomb is empty. The grave clothes uh, vacated. And, of course, we know that the body wasn't stolen because no grave robber would leave the clothes empty. Uh, Those grave clothes were expensive. Again, if you know the ancient world, they would have been anointed with expensive uh, sort of perfumes and various bits and pieces. Grave robbers always kept the cloth uh, to, to, uh, to sell. It was expensive. They wouldn't have left it. The empty tomb was an established fact. It was verifiable by every first century skeptic and opponent of the new faith. When Christianity first was proclaimed, uh, all they had to do to put it down, and put it down they tried, was to uh, show the tomb was still full or to uh, get hold of Jesus' body and show that indeed he hadn't risen from the dead. The tomb was empty. It was never denied. But, of course, you need more than an empty tomb to establish resurrection. You need personal encounters, of which, again, the first recorded by John is so significant. So, thirdly, notice Mary and the gardener. In Mary's encounter with the gardener, we get an insight, don't we, into her mind and the mind of the disciples. You know, they say seeing is believing, don't they? But so often, isn't it true that we see what we want to see, Uh, or we see what it is that we hope to see. 
But notice the nature of Mary's encounter with the gardener. She sees Jesus face to face, but she doesn't see him. Uh, One preacher I read put it like this. Mary did not see the gardener and think he was Jesus. She saw Jesus and thought he was the gardener. In other words, Mary and the disciples were just not expecting to see Jesus. They weren't expecting to see him. In fact, not only were they not expecting to see him, they weren't even hoping to see him. It wasn't even a hope beyond hope that he may have risen from the dead. The resurrection was so far beyond their worldview that they couldn't see it even when it was staring in their face. Mary needed a personal word from the Lord to open her eyes and her heart to the truth of the resurrection. Tim Keller, an American pastor, in his uh, great sort of book, uh, The Reason for God, says this, Over the years, skeptics about the resurrection have proposed that the followers of Jesus may have had hallucinations, that they may have imagined him appearing to them and speaking to them. But this assumes that their master's resurrection was imaginable for his Jewish followers, that it was an option in their worldview. It was not. Mary and her gender, the disciples in the grave clothes, Mary in the gardener, and then sort of coming forward a little bit from John 20, finally the church and its growth. You know, the apostles who met the risen Jesus were transformed by that meeting. They went from frightened, fragile men who uh, ran from the cross to become fearless evangelists in the face of opposition. They were tortured. Many of them were killed for defending the truth that Jesus is alive. And as Pascal, the great French philosopher, once put it, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. And their proclamation changed the world. Jesus' resurrection has started something global. It is the power, the life behind the growth of the church. The the church that began with 11 outlaws and stands now at uh, whatever it does, one and a half billion, maybe more. So for those of us here uh, who wouldn't yet call ourselves Christians, for those of us who are investigating the Christian faith, don't dismiss the resurrection out of hand. There is good and solid evidence for it, persuasive evidence for the resurrection. The resurrection was no everyday occurrence. The Bible writers knew that. But Jesus was no ordinary man. He came as God's son to suffer for the sake of sinners, to win forgiveness and a fresh start with God for all who would embrace him. The resurrection validates this. There is life beyond death. Jesus has gone before us and we will meet him as king and judge. And if we would but embrace him now and the forgiveness that he offers, well, he will embrace us then and grant us life with him. The resurrection is of first importance. It was always a truth grounded in the empty tomb and the witness of, uh, or the accounts of the eyewitnesses. The faith of the first Christians was not based on hearsay and hope and rumor. It was grounded on historical record. Their faith and ours was never blind. It was always rooted in fact. And we rejoice in the empty tomb, for it brings us our assurance of Christ as Lord and Savior, assurance of sins forgiven, 
and the assurance of life forever. And that is the second and final point I want to draw here from John. We have a faith, says John, that is beyond reasonable doubt. And secondly, we have a future that is beyond the realm of death. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing uh, about the death and resurrection, says this. Listen to these words. They are very striking. He says this. We have, those who put their faith in Jesus, we have been buried with Jesus and raised with him through faith. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you know, if we're Christians, we're not merely bystanders in the resurrection events of 2,000 years ago. By faith, we are participants in the resurrection. We have been, by faith, raised spiritually to new resurrection life now. It begins at the moment of faith. And one day, when Jesus returns, we'll be raised physically There are two consequences that flow from this. The first is this. We have life before death. We have life before death. We receive resurrection life. Again, the Apostle Paul says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You know, when you become a Christian, it's not like joining another club. It's not like joining Tesco's, you know, club card. We're not just signing up to a scheme which gives us points for being good and that you get to trade in for prizes. When we become Christians, something fundamental happens to our very natures. We are, says Jesus, we are remade. There is a definitive break with the past, a fresh start. Jesus speaks about it in John's Gospel as being born again into a new life with a new master. We have, if you like, new spiritual DNA that now wants to live for God rather than against him. And we have a new power, the power of the Holy Spirit, empowering this new life. So when we become Christians, we're not merely reformed. I used to behave like this, but now I don't. We're not merely rehabilitated. I used to be unhappy, unfulfilled, but now I'm not. We're not merely re-educated. I used to be an atheist, but now I believe in God. No, we are recreated, New creations. This is not turning over a new leaf. This is starting a new life. And I want to suggest this morning, this is, great, this is great news. This is a great truth for those of us wanting to change and become more like the Lord Jesus, but fear that we can't because our bad habits or character or whatever it might be are so ingrained, or our histories are, are so determinative for our present. Sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, about bad characteristics, you know, unfortunately that's just me. It's part of my makeup, part of who I am. You know, I, I've, I've always had a bad temper. You know, I just, can't, I just can't change that. But the resurrection says when we become Christians, that old me is killed and a new me begins. Having a bad temper is no longer what it is to be me. It's no longer inevitable. We can fight it knowing that a new you, a new me, has begun. A new life is possible, for it flows from the risen Jesus. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I wish I could change, but you know, I'm a product of, the, of my start in life. 
I had a very bad start, and that has you know, set me on a certain course, which I'm now doomed to live. And again, we want to say no. If you're a Christian, we had a new start in life, surrounded by the love and the promises of God and his family. We're not prisoners to our past. A new life is possible. It flows from the risen Lord Jesus. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that uh, living and growing in the Christian life is easy. There are many who bear the scars of difficult pasts and difficult presents. But the good news of the resurrection is what, while our histories and our character and our circumstances have an influence on us, they do not hold our identity. While they might exert a pull, they need not enslave us as their prisoner. We will all still struggle with old patterns of behavior and be influenced by our past and our present as we await our new physical bodies where all those traces of uh, old behavior will be erased. And our struggles will be unique. I will struggle in different ways to, to how you struggle, for my temptations are different to yours, my history is different to yours. But there is power to change, to live God's way. That is what the resurrection proclaims. Because we have the Spirit of God in us who is recreating us. Old addictions, old habits, old character traits no longer have mastery. And when they whisper to us, we can shout back at them, You are not me anymore. For the old has gone and the new has come. Thanks be to God. There is hope before Death. And of course, as I close, there is hope and life beyond death. The resurrection proclaims this central truth that in Jesus, death has met its match. It has been seized and it has been conquered. The black door of death and darkness that stood locked and bolted has been broke open and uh, flown open by the Lord Jesus. You know, there are many gurus out there who would tell us how to live life successfully, but there is only one Lord who has shown us he can shepherd us safely through death. One Christian writer puts it like this, only the Lord Jesus can lead a man through death, all other guides turn back, and the traveler must go on alone. But the resurrection means that Christians need not fear death, for we never travel alone. Like a needle pulling thread through cloth, Jesus has pierced death and he pulls through all who are attached to him by faith. So Christians are not a people who have to look back for the best in life. We need not be consumed by regrets or ghosts of the past. For those of us trusting in Christ, we are looking forward to the best. Troubles in life may be long and they may be painful, They may be a long, difficult chapter, but they are never the final chapter for the Christian. We are a people of hope. Last Wednesday, uh, a friend of my wife's, uh, uh, who she knew as a student back in London, uh, died of cancer at the age of, uh, I think, 45. She was a a, a single lady, very strong, very committed uh, Christian. And uh, she had her her funeral at Burford Church, where she'd been a member for the last 13 years. And in October, when she had uh, received the terminal diagnosis, she gave an interview at her church with the vicar, Richard Coombs, which she wanted to put on YouTube uh, to uh, sort of encourage uh, Christians and to say a little bit about how it was as a Christian she had come to terms with the terminal diagnosis. I'm going to close the sermon by showing you a three-minute clip. 
uh, from this uh, interview, which speaks about her hope beyond death in the light of the resurrection. Just to say, up to this point, uh, she has spoken very movingly about the shock of the diagnosis, about the sadness of leaving uh, friends and family and and her six uh, godchildren. She has said that after the initial diagnosis, she uh, uh, sort of said, did what the Bible said to do. She, she prayed. She got the elders of her church to come and anoint her with oil. And there were initially some signs that, uh, of physical healing. She thought at first that God might be going to work through physical healing. But a few months later came the diagnosis that her cancer was terminal. And uh, she came to realize that God was going to uh, be at work in her death. And here she speaks, I think, movingly and eloquently about the hope that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ brings her as she faces uh, her death. I didn't know, I knew he was in control. Um, I think with regard to the prognosis that I got in September, my initial reaction was, oh gosh, I've been shortchanged in life. Yes. I'm 45 years yes. old and I just felt shortchanged. And as you've come to terms with that, has that changed? Um, yes, it has. As I pondered on this feeling shortchanged, I kind of thought, okay, I'd already, always thought I would live to old age. Um, I think most of us do presume. So I thought, oh, I thought I'd have another 40 years on li- in life. And then I thought, well, that 40 years would be with an ageing body. And then when I compared that to eternity with the Lord Jesus, where I have a perfect body, it just... That the prognosis just came so much easier to bear. Mm. I understood that why am I worried that I didn't have another 40 years in this life when I've got eternity with a perfect body with the Lord Jesus. Mm. So it just came, became easier to bear. Um, I think having a prognosis like that makes you think about life more. Mm. And I think I reflected that I didn't really feel I'd lived my life truly in the light of eternity. I think yeah. I'd lived my life uh, just for this life, and didn't really think enough about eternity. And consequently, in the last six weeks, I've had just a real urgent desire to tell people about the hope of the Lord Jesus, the mm. hope of eternal life. And, um, you know, God's given me amazing opportunities with everyone I seem to meet. So I've spoken to doctors and nurses and uh, the dentist and the garage man. Um, I even spoke to the estate agent. <laughs> who, uh, usual question of an estate agent, when and where are you moving? (laughs) Uh, To which, you know, I had to say, well, probably pretty soon and I'm moving to heaven. I think he was so stunned when it came to him coming to do the valuation, he sent a colleague. (laughs) Poor man. So Liz, you sound incredibly confident about life after death. How, How can you be so sure? Um, because it's not based, it's not conditional on how I've lived my life. The fact I can be so confident is because I trust in what the Lord Jesus did for me when he died and rose again. My sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's not based on whether I've lived a good life. So I can be totally confident because I fully trust in what Jesus did for me. And I don't see death as defeat. I don't see it that the cancer has won. Um, I know that one day I'll have a brand new body with no cancer, no pain, when we're raised with Jesus. Well, it is wonderful to hear such confidence in in the face of death. Um, Let's close in prayer.
God of glory, by the raising of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have broken the chains of death and hell. Fill us with faith and hope, for a new day has dawned, and the way to life everlasting stands open in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.